Matthew 5. Good morning. Good morning. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And there we find the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, starting at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Following the Beatitudes, Jesus tells his followers that people who receive these blessings matter. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I know this passage is very familiar to us, and I am glad it is. I think repeatedly reading the Bible is one of the best things that we can do for ourselves. Reading the Bible often gets us familiar and comfortable with its contents. And then as we get deeper into the study of the text, we find the studying easier and more productive. This morning, we will be looking at the last few verses of this passage, verses 13 through 16, about the salt and the light. A salt is absolutely fascinating. In ancient times, salt was considered very valuable In our time, we really don't have a feel for that. Salt was accepted and collected as taxes for the Romans. One of the main sources of salt for the Palestinians was, of course, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. Salt was an important article of trade. It was transported by boat across the Mediterranean, along specially built salt roads, and even across the Sahara on camel caravans. In the days before refrigeration, the only way to preserve meat was to salt it. They would rub salt into the meat or soak it in brine. They either kept it soaked in brine or they just left the salt on to harden. Salt is a preservative. The word salary comes from an ancient word meaning salt money, referring to a Roman soldier's allowance for the purchase of salt. Someone who earns his pay is still said to be worth his salt. Salt was a sign of friendship. 
Today in some cultures, if two men partake of salt together, they are sworn to protect one another, even if they had previously been enemies. People in other cultures will throw salt over their shoulders when they make a promise. Aristotle wrote about a Greek proverb, men cannot know each other until they have eaten salt together. There were salt covenants, and one is mentioned in Second Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5. Should you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons, by a covenant of salt? Here Abijah refers to the strong binding promise of God to give Israel to David and his sons forever. Salt was a very important commodity in ancient times. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, and they heard just that phrase, they could have thought about a lot of different things. They could have thought Jesus was saying, for instance, that they were valuable since salt was valuable. Salt was also used to season food. Food without salt seems just to have something missing. Many people have a difficult time when they're told they have to be on a salt-free diet. And the Bible illustrates that concept in Job chapter 6 at verse 6. Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? What a difference there is between an egg with salt and an egg without salt. Those listening may have thought of the seasoning idea. They would have thought of, well, in Ezekiel chapter 16, there's an interesting use of salt at the birth of a baby. Verse 4. As for your nativity and the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt nor swathed in swaddling clothes. It was a practice in ancient times that when a baby was born, it was first washed with water and then salt was rubbed all over the baby's body. The practice is not well understood now. It may have been that in the process of birth, some nicks or scratches occurred and the salt would have acted as a healing agent that would have been good for the skin. It may have had something to do with the idea that salt would help toughen the skin of the newborn. A baby, however, that was not salted at birth was considered neglected in very ancient times. Salt, though, could also serve a destructive purpose. In Judges 9, verse 45, So Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He took the city and killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. Land that has been salted will not grow most plants that are used for food. Asparagus has a higher tolerance for salt and soil, higher than most of the weeds do. Therefore, it was an old practice in my parents' day and grandparents' day that uh, you would take the salty water from the ice cream maker and spread it over the asparagus to kill the weeds. However, that's no longer done because too much salt can build up in the soil, and eventually that will kill the asparagus as well. Salting land was a horrible thing to do. Salting the fields of an enemy was almost unheard of. In fact, Judges 9 is the only time in the Bible that I can think of where it was done. 
In history, the Romans did do the same thing to the city of Carthage, though. We can see how the statement, you are the salt of the earth, could take people's minds in several directions with several understandings. I'll mention to you in passing a few of the things that commentators suggest on this passage, and I'll tell you which one I think is best. Some commentators think that Jesus had purity in mind here. Salt is white. White is a symbol of purity. Some state that Jesus was connecting the salt with verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Certainly it is true that we are to be examples of purity and hold up God's standard in thought and speech and action. Though when Jesus talked, for instance, about whited sepulchers, he certainly was not talking about purity there. He was speaking of looking pure and being corrupt. The whiteness there did not have a good connotation at all. If Jesus is connecting purity with the whiteness of salt here, I don't think that's his main point. Another thought is that he's talking about flavor. Now, you are the flavor. You're the flavor of the world. Without you, the world is just tasteless. Well, there is a sense in which we flavor the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. It says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Does the world think of us as salt, though? I suspect not. I suspect the world in general thinks we make the world tasteless. They have connected Christianity with that which takes the flavor out of life. Well, I don't want to be a Christian. You can't do anything. The English poet Swinburne, considered to be a poet of the decadent school, wrote, Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. The world hath grown gray from thy breath. Quite a statement. You have lulled the world into gray. Although there is a sense in which we are symbols of purity in the world and we do flavor the world, I don't think that's quite dead center on what is meant when our Lord says you are the salt of the earth. A third opinion is that salt stings, and many commentators point this out. Salt does indeed have medical applications. Today we still use salt for easing pain of canker sores, ingrown toenails, insect bites, sore throat, and heat cramps. We also use it in neti pots for sinus problems, as a soap for tired feet, and to relieve the scaly patches and inflammation of psoriasis and eczema. Some would say Christians are not to be honey to soothe the sinful world, but salt the world to help heal it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death to death, and to the other the aroma of life to life. As McGarvey put it, to the unbelieving, the news of the gospel is from one who was crucified and is dead. 
So for them, it is an odor of death unto death, even eternal death. But to Christians, the news of the gospel is from life, that is, from the one who is alive forevermore. Hence, the news of the gospel is from life unto life in them that are saved. There are times when we get into the wounds of the world, whether we really intended to or not. There are times when we have to say things to people in the world that they don't want to hear and they don't take it very well. I suspect, though, that's not all there is to the salt the Lord is talking about here. Another function of salt is to create thirst. The body does need some salt to maintain a proper balance. The human body regulates how much sodium it contains. If levels are too high, we get thirsty and drink, then the kidneys speed up the process of getting rid of it. We are told too much salt can lead to kidney stones, high blood pressure, and cardiovascular disease. Too little sodium can lead to nausea, vomiting, headache, confusion, fatigue, and muscle cramps. Sometimes we have that effect in the world and create a kind of interest or thirst. What is that that you've got? How can you be so peaceful in this or that situation? Where does your contentment come from? We are the salt. They may not like our theology. They may not want our Christ. But they see the lifestyle in us that makes them thirst for what Jesus brings. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Well, he may have elements of all of this in his possibilities. I can see from those commenting on this passage what they are picturing. Because we ought to be pure in the world. We ought to flavor it. We ought to sting it at appropriate times as salt in a wound. We should make the world thirsty for God because our lives are so rich and full. Another thought that a person hearing this may have had is that salt is a preservative. In that age, and even today, salt is used to preserve food. Salt retards spoilage. It does so by dehydrating the food and being toxic to many microbes. We are, in a sense, an antiseptic preservative in the world to retard the spread of corruption. If it weren't for the Christians in the world, the world would be far more corrupt than it is now. We essentially preserve it. As we live a holy, Christ-like character in the world, we are adding flavor to the world, a bit of sting where needed, making those in need thirsty for the word and preserving the world from going completely corrupt. Christians are a check on the rottenness and decay of the world. Jesus also says, but if the salt loses its flavor, how can it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. What a truly worthless state is the apostate Christian. The Savior says of them that they are good for nothing. Our presence in the world should influence, deter evil behavior, change certain kinds of conversations. It ought to affect, it ought to barb, it ought to shock. Our presence should condemn apostasy. It should affect the way people think and even affect the way people talk around us. 
It is amazing how many people alter their conversations in the workplace when they know you're a Christian. If we're going to do that, we cannot live the way the world lives. We are in the world, yet different and separate. We are the only restraint on the rotting carcass of humanity. It's absolutely astounding how God uses something as humble and basic as us. God gives a noble purpose to ignoble people. When he made man in the beginning, he did not use silver or gold or even iron. He used common dirt. When David was used to deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines, he did not use Saul's kingly armor. He used a slingshot and a little rock. When Jesus came, he did not enter a family of wealth and nobility. He came to a peasant girl and was born in a stable. When he chose the 12, he did not choose the elite, the affluent, the educated. He picked unlearned Galileans. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 at verse 26, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things which are. It's always been this way. God declares that we, meager as we are, are the salt of the earth. He wants to use us to retard corruption. God gets the greater glory. Now listen to me now. God gets the greater glory because of the humbleness of the ones that he uses. Notice, by the way, Jesus says, you are. Whether we like it or not, it does not change the fact that we as Christians are. We are. In a way, salt and light balance each other. You might say that salt is more hidden. It just melts away into whatever it flavors or preserves. But light shines on the outside. Light is open and light is working visibly. We affect our society's thinking and living by the power of our lives. We turn on the light so that everybody can see the message that we want to give. It isn't just our words, but our overt, open, godly conduct. We are both a subtle influence like salt and a blatant influence like light. Salt cannot change corruption into incorruption. Salt only retards the corruption. We have to shine the light of the gospel to transform corruption into incorruption. Verse 16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It implies that they have heard something about the Father which is in heaven. If they're going to glorify him by seeing us, they have heard something about him somewhere along the line. And this implies a life and a message, lived and spoken. Often people ask, what's more important, the Christian walk or the Christian talk? To me, they're like two wings of an airplane. 
You're not going to get off the ground without both of them. They're both important. And here's an interesting thing. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, the very first verse in Acts, Acts 1 and 1, Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach. There's both of them right there. Do and teach. Those two things go together, the living and the speaking, living the righteous life and speaking the truth in love. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes here. First John chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God is light. His word is light. John 8 and 12. When Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Christ is the light that lights every man. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can enlighten people only because God has enlightened us. God passes that light down through us. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. If they're going to criticize us, let them make something up, because there's nothing true that they can use. If we have to be hated, let's be hated like Christ was, hated without cause, blameless, harmless, children of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom we shine as lights in the world, bringing forth the word of light. And that should always be our motto, holding forth the word of light. The light has to shine openly, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Often the villages in Jesus' day were built on the tops of hills. That way they could easily catch the cooling of the breezes and they could be more easily defended. When night came and everybody lit their little lamp, it just made the whole village sparkle. A city could not be hidden. Light was for the purpose of shining openly. If you remember in World War II, during the time of the Blitz in England, they tried to get everybody to keep their lights off, and it was almost impossible. A city is a very, very hard thing to hide. We are not just subtle salt. We are very conspicuous light. We are not a secret society. We are not pagans with mysteries only for the initiated. We don't have a cult that is known only to a few. We are a city set on a hill, and the whole world ought to see us. There's nothing hidden here. What's the problem with all of this? The problem is that if sin enters our lives and we no longer walk in the Spirit, then we stop being effective as salt and we become useless as a light. In verse 13, he says, If the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? Non-salty salt is of no use. It's good for nothing, 
but to be cast out and trod under the foot of men. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. There is no place for a secret Christian. Can salt lose its saltiness? Indeed it can. And I'll mention one way it did in biblical times. The harvested salt from the Dead Sea contained the desired salt, sodium chloride, as well as other salts and impurities. It was a custom to store vast amounts of salt in buildings which had earthen floors. In time, the salt next to the ground spoiled. It absorbed moisture, became bitter. Since that would be harmful to the land because of the salt content, no man would allow it to be thrown on his field. The only place left was the street where it was trodden underfoot. The Greek word here means flat and tasteless. And that's what the Lord is talking about in Luke 14, verse 34. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yes, salt can lose its usefulness to flavor or preserve, and we can lose ours too. If sin begins to dominate our lives, then we lose our saltiness, and with it, we lose our influence for good. We cannot retard the corruption of the world any longer because we are of the world and there is nothing to distinguish us from the world anymore. We forfeit our influence, we lose our impact, and we can become the castaway. It is true that perfectly pure salt does not lose its flavor. Trouble is, none of us are perfectly pure salt. Just like the sea salt has its impurities, while we're in the world, we're going to have some impurities. The potential for losing our saltiness is always going to be there. What about the light? What they used most commonly at at the time of this writing was little terracotta lamps with a spout on one end, a handle on the other, and a wick set in oil. If the lamp was left lit at night to provide light to the house, they would have to keep enough oil on hand and be conscientious enough to keep the wick trimmed so that it would burn at its brightest and not smoke. You and I have this treasure in our earthen vessels. Unfortunately, some Christians are not willing to shine that light because of what they perceive it will attract. It may mean that they will need to Give an answer to every man who asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. The fear of persecution, whether it's subtle or overt, makes us hesitant at times. In verse 16, he personalizes this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. There is a beauty and attractiveness in those good works. When you do something good for somebody, that affects their attitude toward you. He says, let the world see my beauty in you. This light is in you. You don't have to crank up the light or worry about getting a light started. All you have to do is let it be seen. Christ lives in you already. 
and he is the light. Just let that light shine. Do not let Satan and the world blow it out. Like the song says, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. If you've got a basket of fear over it, all you have to do is take that basket off. If you've got a basket of wanting to be acceptable over it, all you have to do is take that basket off. Perhaps a basket of not wanting to offend somebody or a basket of not wanting to make waves. Take the basket off. Just simply let it shine by the things that you do and the things that you say. The purpose of all of this is the glorification of God, that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven, the last phrase of verse 16. If that is not your priority, then you're more concerned with yourself than you are with God's glory. If your top priority is the glory of God, then you will be salty. Salt and your light will be made manifest. Those people 2,000 years ago needed to hear the basics, and we who know the Bible still need to hear and remind ourselves. What is this about then? It's about your personal influence. As Christians, we have been given the greatest gift of all, freely. All we had to do is accept it, eternal life with our Creator. We are also then given the ability to share that gift with the world and honor the giver. How? Through our life, through our personal influence. What about your personal influence? What's it like? What happens when you walk by? We need to live and talk so that the world can see who God is and that we belong to him. This very day, some have passed out of this world. Tomorrow, more will pass into the next world. We never know who it's going to be, and it's often surprising. If you were to die tomorrow, what would be said? What could be said that you made a difference in the world? Sweep through this life as salt and light and make a difference. We know it is not always going to be easy. It seems it's probably going to get harder in this world where we live today, not easier. But just because the world makes it hard on us, we should not hide or keep our mouths shut. We work God's plan that is in us. The way to change the world is not to go out and try to change the world politically. It isn't to rewrite the laws or march in protest. It isn't to use technology for altering society. The way we change the world is to infiltrate it with godliness and righteousness and holiness and affect it from the inside out. Those other things I mentioned aren't wrong. It's just they are powerless to change the world. The way to do it is through the influence of godly people. In Matthew 23, Christ told his disciples that the scribes and the Pharisees were successors of some of the dignity and authority of Moses, not in the sense of really possessing such authority, but in the sense of being responsible for teaching Moses' law and faithfully interpreting it to the people. Yet they did not practice what they taught and their lives were amiss. In verse 37, Christ says, How often I wanted to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. God is willing. 
Yet we may cause him tears because we too can be unfaithful. May we live our lives to this marvelous commandment. May God make us different that the world may be different because we are. God may call us in the days ahead to stand up and be counted for his cause. We don't know what the future holds. Hebrew 12 verse 4 says, You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. In this country, we haven't been murdered yet, but that time could easily come. Things have accelerated recently where we can see possibilities that could really occur even during the lifetime of those who do not have much earth lifetime left. We don't know what the future holds, but we need each of us to come to grips with our intentions. Right now, you've just got one life, one shot at life while you're here. You've chosen Christ. You love Christ. His word has penetrated your heart. We have been redeemed at a price, and he paid that supreme price for us. He bore the blows that should have been borne by us. We're only the salt and the light. Let's be different and let us make a difference. We learn from the New Testament how to be saved. We need to hear the word, believe in Jesus, repent of our sins. We must confess our belief that Jesus is the Son of God and then be baptized for the remission of our sins. If we follow these steps, the Lord adds us to his church. Perhaps there's someone in the assembly today with the need to be buried with Christ in baptism. If you've never done these things, we urge you to do them today. If anyone has this need or desires the prayers of faithful Christians on their behalf, we encourage them to come forward while we stand and sing our invitation song. <laughs> 